Hi, this is Jeff Cooper, and we welcome you to this Disney at Work podcast. Today we're asking the question, can you afford Disney? Are you Disney's target audience? With increasing costs happening at Disney parks, guests are wondering if they are being priced out of the market. In truth, is Disney more about making money than ever before? We look at a number of assumptions that guide Disney's financial choices, many of which target their audience focus. We look at ways in which Disney is is focusing and targeting on audiences in a different way and whether you may be part of that audience. We'll also overview a new price tier for those who can't afford to visit the Disney parks at all. Intrigued? Well then, this podcast will help you rethink how Disney may be looking at its audience. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. My apologies, by the way, for uh, it's been a few days since I last podcasted and I have a great review coming up of uh, of Be Our Guest. I was surprised by how much I really liked that experience and we'll hopefully have that podcast coming up next, plus a bunch of other really good ones that I'll talk about a little bit later. We also want to thank those of you who have joined the Wayfinder Society uh, recently to include Meredith, Bain, Shaw, Savannah, Gracie, um, Nicole, and uh, Rebecca. We appreciate um, those who look into the Wayfinder Society because it gives you opportunity to check out and interact with Disney in new ways uh, that you have never done before, as well as support the, the work that we are doing here on this end. So we thank you for that. Now, with all that, let's talk about some things that are happening here um, at Disney and what uh, what they may imply. Let's start off with a very baseline uh, notion. Disney must pay attention to shareholder value. Disney's a business. This has especially been the case since 1984 and continues to be the defining difference between how a company like Disney thinks about pricing and how a company like Oriental Land Company maybe approaches it. Now, if you're not familiar with Oriental Land Company, they they actually are the owners of Tokyo Disney and of the Tokyo Disney Resort. And if you look at how they approach their business, it is much more the way people would like to probably see it. First of all, of all the price pricing in um, Disney parks globally, they are the most affordable park, um, which is an interesting notion because they still have to pay Disney for the right to be a park. Um, and yet, um, and yet, uh, on many levels, they are very affordable. A little bit more expensive on food and beverage, but then again, uh, it's Japan. You would think a country, uh, a park that was especially located in Tokyo, would be very expensive on all levels. And actually, in many ways, it's more affordable. Now, this is not about Tokyo Disney. It's about the idea that organizations like Disney in the United States approach a more short-term view of increasing shareholder value than the Japanese do. And that's important because again, as Disney is a business, they have to think about shareholder value. Why do they have to think about that? 
it's not that they care more about shareholders than they care, although they are shareholders themselves as executives, it's not that they care about shareholders more than they care about guests. It's much deeper than that. What makes this very complicated, and this is a very important notion, there are still what we refer to as wolves on Wall Street. The same kind of forces that nearly devoured and ripped apart the Walt Disney Company back in the 1980s still exist today. Now, if you're not familiar with that experience, what was happening is Disney was in a very different perspective. It was very, um, it had done very well as a park. It was the best, it was doing better than the other part of the company at that point in time. And yet, um, people on the outsides looked at it and thought, you could charge a whole lot more. This, this company's undervalued. We could come in and buy up this company and rip it apart and resell it and make a gazillion dollars off of this thing. Well, that began a showdown, a showdown that resulted in a number of things, one of which was when Michael Eisner came on board to kind of um, show that uh, Disney was going to be very focused on as a company in terms of creating value back to its shareholders and um, prices went up significantly back then and so forth. And, and, and they did all that largely to stave off the wolves on Wall Street who wanted to buy it up, rip it up, and sell it up. Now, in truth, today there may be different players, but they could still come to the table. Would you want Disney to be owned by a Jeff Bezos Amazon-style firm or a Tim Cook Apple-style firm? In fact, Actually, Bob Iger even talked about the fact in a recent interview that if Steve Jobs had been um, still alive, that um, the companies probably would have merged. Is that really a great idea? Um, is that really what you want? Um, and don't think that these things don't happen because we just saw how Microsoft bought a very um, premier game um, company, gaming company. So you see that these still things still happen. Of course, Disney has been buying up other uh, companies and organizations such as Fox and Marvel and, and Lucasfilm. So, but, but you have to ask which of these would dilute the brand and really make Disney less special than what it is. When the value of Disney products and services seem undervalued in the marketplace, then the wolves start to wonder if they couldn't buy up Disney and make more money than what is currently being made. In other words, even if executives at Disney wanted to give this whole thing away for free, guess coming, they would lose their jobs and the company would be ran by others. Others who might even charge more than what is being charged now. The ramifications of this is a different reality than in Walt Disney's name. By the way, Walt Disney often remarked he wished he hadn't incorporated um, and had gone um, into shareholders and and so forth. And, and he hated to show up at shareholders meetings and all of that was involved because he liked to have control. He liked to have control of his organization, but that occurred. And that was actually his choice and Roy's choice. Um, but even then after that, they they 
they the shareholders made money on Disney, but they made it over a long term. They would say things like, "Hey, you know, uh, um, uh, Aunt Judy out in you know uh, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, or whatever she." Uh, bought stock back in 1933 or 38 and look at it today it's now worth you know 50 times that that amount and so forth it was a model based on long-term shareholder growth unfortunately um, that does not exist um, but that was a vision back in before the 80s in fact Walt's vision for Walt Disney World would offer accommodations for every kind of guest from, quote, a sleeping bag to a suite, which they actually did deliver. But even the sleeping bag's pretty expensive nowadays. In other words, they wanted to create an experience that would allow guests along the economic scale the greatest advantage for attending. But some things have happened beyond the wolves on, on, on Wall Street. The scarcity of product against demand meaning there are only so many theme parks to go around and there are a lot of people wanting to attend along with high shareholder expectations make that a difficult scenario to play out fiscally it's a sad truth but the fact is they can't give away the farm that's a reality added to that is the next notion disney has to think globally this is no longer about california and florida the world impacts those places, but the company is bigger than that. Disney is a multinational company with an immense global reach. For instance, in 2016, Disney became the strongest global brand in the world, according to Marketing Week. It overtook other organizations like Coca-Cola, Lego, Nike, Google. Disney is a global brand and it's had to be because that was a missed opportunity in decades previously. And in order to again, stave off the wolves, it had to think more globally because that was a window of opportunity they hadn't truly taken advantage of. Now that said, Walt Disney World itself is still the company's biggest theme park revenue generator. So who visits this park does really matter. But the net of potential visitors in other words, the, the, the total sum of who could come to Walt Disney World is very different than it was in 1971. Even when you add four parks to visit, or even water parks and all that the resort offers, there is still a whole lot more people than back in 1971, when most people back then, by the way, who came visited by car, People throughout the world travel to Walt Disney World and guests living in the UK, Canada, and Brazil make a very important demographic to the bottom line. And so, again, more people coming with air, uh, airlines and, and the ability to get here from anywhere, uh, there are a lot more people. That, that increases demand. Demand increases um, price. By the way, Disney targets more than families. Does Disney care about families being able to attend the parks? Absolutely. Uh, no one does tourism toward the family market like Disney, especially with younger ones. But even Walt Disney conceded way back in the day that on weekends during the school year, Disneyland's park attendance was primarily adults with no children. Disney has never stayed away from 
any market, primarily if they had dollars. Their presence in the marketplace allows Disney to drive up the price because adults without children can typically pay more and will usually spend more than those with families. Uh, and certain markets are more lucrative than others. Also, certain business is far more lucrative for Disney than other forms of business. Convention business. If you look, we have big convention hotels from the Contemporary to the Boardwalk to Yacht and Beach um, to Grand Floridian to, of course, the Swan and Dolphin. Big, oh, and the Coronado, Disney's Coronado Springs. This is big convention business. Convention business prior to the pandemic was a major contributor to bottom line revenues. Before all that convention traffic came in, at the level it came in during the 90s, you would find that the false fall and and the spring up until spring break or up until Easter was was very soft. But no, that is huge convention business time. And so that has filled up with f food and wine during the fall. That has increased the number of people attending. A wedding business is a different, but also a profitable adventure. Even a marathon runner can be more profitable than an average guest coming that same weekend, often because they will spend on the run, plus merchandise related to the run, while also taking time to visit the parks and do what the other guests do. I mean, what an amazing thing that Disney is able to get 27,000 people or whatever that number is during the run and get them to just simply fill up their streets while not, not even really filling up their parks. And then when they do come to the parks, they pay extra on that, on top of that. Someone doing a land and sea experience involving both the parks and the Disney Cruise Line is much more attractive to Disney. We get them on land, we get them on sea. That's huge money as opposed to just somebody coming for a few days to Walt Disney World. Perhaps even more attractive is someone who participates in adventures by Disney. We don't use up. Um, ships, which we don't have enough of. We don't use up theme parks, which we have enough of, but they pay a ton of money to go anywhere. And, and, so, uh, and so that business is lucrative. But all those options require money on the part of the consumer. And the ones who are easily willing to pay for that are those, well, that make more money. Note, there are more customers on this planet than ever. There were 3.7 billion people in 1971 when Walt Disney World opened. There are, or there were three, there were 7.75 billion people in 2020. Exponentially, there are more people who can enter a Disney park than ever before. Disney cannot build enough theme parks to keep up with the world's population growth. Given that scenario, a strategy that focuses on attracting 10 different parties who may come a couple of times in a 20-year period might be a better choice than one person who comes once a year over the same 20-year period. Because they're coming only once in a great while, it's the trip of a lifetime, they're spending a whole lot more money on that one trip than somebody who comes 20 times and said, no, I've been here before, I don't need to spend that much money. That, of course, assumes that it didn't cost more to attract those 10 different parties than it did for attracting one party 20 times. In other words, Disney loves you if you come a lot, but 
but especially if you spend a lot every time you come. What about annual pass holders? Well, it might be a better strategy to use annual pass holders as a filler, but not as a primary source of revenue. Indeed, if the park is filled with pass holders, it may deny others who bring in more revenue. And with a reservation system in place, Disney can regulate for that. For instance, Disney would rather rent a room out to someone who is paying for tickets straight than a party who's utilizing their annual pass during a weekend stay. They're just making more money off of people who are not annual pass holders. It's that they don't need the annual pass holders. And in fact, it's been important to the post-COVID, you know, in 21 and 20, as they reopened, to have those annual pass holders. But again, it's a balance point. Now, I want to come back to this idea that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that um, people um, who have the money are willing to pay for things. Wealth has increased. The Brookings Institute back in 2018 described a tipping point where for the first time, just over 50% of the world's population, or some 3.8 billion people, lived in households with enough discretionary expenditure to be considered middle class or rich. In other words, more people, as of 2018, were wealthy for the first time than poor. That's never been the case, ever. The poor has always dominated. Now that has tipped in a different direction. There are more middle class and rich. Important in this is the dominant growth that was in Asia. I know some people in the United States, they may think this is not necessarily true here. Um, it seems like um, people have less money than ever before or can't, um, can't afford as much with the money they make than they did before. But historically, the rich have become richer faster than the rest of the population, according to the Brookings Institute. Moreover, globally, you, you in the United States, are considered probably wealthy. Um, the Pew Research Center allows you to calculate, and I have these links and, and diagrams in, in, the, uh, in Disney at work.com, so definitely check that out. They allow you to calculate where you are in terms of wealth globally. For instance, if you are a party of two and you make 45000 a year, you are actually considered globally a high-income earner. That said, don't make a mistake. If you earn 40, only 45000 a year, you're probably struggling a little to come to Disney, depending on where you're at. If, you're, um, if your income is low, or if your expenses are low, you probably could afford uh, it if you're only a party of two. But if you're a family of four making 45000 then you're in a, in a more difficult scenario. Moreover, wealth will increase. Since wealth will increase, Disney can increase pricing. They can make more money. More people making more money means Disney can charge more. That's important because the middle class is emerging, as mentioned earlier, and more people are capable of earning the kind of income that would permit them to go to a Disney theme park, perhaps not every year, but easily a time or two during a child's development years 
or at least once in a lifetime. And I have a diagram that shows um, an increased decrease in the number of people in each of the categories between poor, vulnerable, middle class, and rich. And, and the diagram shows that the middle class has just boomed. Um, um, that has become the dominant thing um, as we move toward 2030. This is a diagram showing where it's going to be in 2030. Disney, by the way, takes its price increases seriously. There is no, um, they are not capricious to increasing something as simple um, as the price of a large soda. You don't just simply decide, oh, uh, hey guys, why don't we uh, charge more for a Coke this week? This week, That is something that is managed across the board and frankly, not done overnight. You got signage issues, you've got communication issues, you got to be across the board equal in all, all of your food and beverage locations. Um, so pricing is, is studied carefully. It is done measurably. It, um, and if, the, if, if they're careful about just something as simple as, as the price of a soda, you can imagine additions made to the park, price increases to the tickets, these things are given a lot of study. Now, I want to read a little bit from an interview that Jay Rasulo, who at that time um, uh, was Senior Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer for the Walt Disney Company. He's no longer with Disney. He was kind of uh, with Tom Stagson in the running for CEO. In the end, neither of them became CEO and Bob Chapek eventually took that, took that role. But this was an interview done with Bob Chapek, and I and it's a little long, but I think you're going to find this kind of fascinating. They asked, they they kind of talk about um, films and Frozen, which had just recently come out, and some things like that, ESPN. But then they they said, let's talk about the parks, and particularly they want to talk about the cruise ships, uh, Cars Land, and at that time the Magic Kingdom expansion. Those latter two things were fairly new, so. Jay says, quote, so let me start by saying that each and every one of those projects you just mentioned and others were kind of, there wasn't a notion seven or eight years ago, hey, let's invest a lot of money in this business. It was each and every one of them had their own strategic rationale behind them, their own sort of monetization model within that business. Some were an answer to a need, some were purely opportunistic but each of them was pretty sizable and they do share that. If we start for no reason whatsoever, but out in California with Disney California Adventure and the expansion of Cars Land and the kind of re-theming of that park, initially that park was introduced as, was an attempt to be kind of an equal to Disneyland. Disneyland had topped out in terms of capacity. When we opened up Disney California Adventure, we had an expectation there would be a certain shifting of the mass of the business. In addition to lifting the numbers, there would be a certain amount of time spent and a certain amount of attendance on a daily basis that would go over to Disney California Adventure, spend a certain amount of time that would reduce some of the pressure in different areas of Disneyland that we would be able to backfill. Well, after we opened that park, we found out that didn't happen. There wasn't. People were going to DCA, but they were only spending a couple of hours. There are a lot of reasons for that not worth going into, but we needed a big thematic anchor, like Cars Land is, 
because it is Disney at its best. You're walking into a world you could never be in in the real world. It is a very true reproduction of a very successful film in terms of the space. People recognize it the second they get there. Kids see all the icons that they saw in the movie and of course it has great attractions as part of it. And it is not a coincidence that we put it all the way in the back of the park because we actually want to draw people all the way through and let them experience what was there. <clears throat> let me just stop there for a minute and say, sometimes I wonder if Rasulu knew where Cars Land was because it's not in the back of the park. It, it, the back one, it goes to the back wall of, the, of one side of the park, but it's actually in the middle of the park. But I want you to just listen to the languaging here because they're clearly, they're clearly being very thoughtful about what they want to do in terms of, of adding attractions and why they're doing it. Let me go on. Quote, and it really did have the dual effect of both lifting the water level in terms of total attendance at the Disneyland Resort, but also relieving some of the congestion at Disneyland. And there was actually, we were at a point of some rejection. It was so congested. And so it really did sort of live. That expansion brought Disney California Adventure to the dream that is always intended to be. Switch over to the Magic Kingdom. You know, statistically, the Magic Kingdom is the most attended theme park in the world. Statistically, at any given moment, 45% of the people in Magic Kingdom are in fantasy land. I'm going to stop there. I find this number <laughs> surprisingly high. 45% is a lot. I'm not questioning the number, but it is a lot. I think 45% at, at some points of the day are in magic, are in Fantasyland. And I do agree with where they're coming. That part of the park, if you think before the expansion, was just, it was tough to get through. It was so, um, it was so full. So, but anyway, this is a very interesting number that so many people were in Fantasyland. He continues, <clears throat> and it was again becoming choked and constrained and the experience was really being impacted by the amount of demand there was for it. So we decided we needed to expand it. We, we needed to expand it in an area that was extraordinarily popular, which was character experiences, character meet and greets, particularly princess-oriented meet and greets, expand some of the attractions for younger guests. And again, it had exactly the kind of impact we wanted. The fantasy of the Magic Kingdom is mostly what draws people to Walt Disney World. And it lifted that fantasy, made it 21st century. He goes on to talk about My, Ma Disney, My Magic Plus, um, <clears throat> which I don't quite agree with and I don't think is really um, as important to this um, conversation. He goes on to talk about cruise ships. Cruise ships, you know, was a very small boutique business for us with two ships. Still is a boutique business with four ships, but they were so over-demanded, so overbooked, that it seemed evident that we could fill two more ships. And of course we have. They basically sail at virtually 100% full, still at the highest load factors by a huge margin relative to any other cruise line, and a price premium relative to other cruise lines. But also, like every business, the use of technology, the, techno the experience that is being offered in that business continued to evolve from when we launched our first ships 20 years ago until today. Again, this is a 2015 interview. 
He goes on to say, quote, so having new inventory on the ocean was also a big driver there. So, you know, you've all followed our theme park business. We've done extremely well for a business of its size and maturity here domestically, adding double digit, sometimes 20% quarter on quarter growth like this previous quarter. And we're very happy with that direction. It's a business that we feel we have a true definition of competitive advantage, and we want to continue to invest that in that around the world. I'll just stop there because he's now asked another question, which is very, very at the heart of what we're talking about today. But notice he says, continue to invest that around the world. There, This is before Shanghai has opened. And so the emphasis is really why we are going to those kinds of parks. Then the question is asked by Michael Nathanson. A question people ask, a question people are always asking, you know, from all your years there is pricing. So is there a ceiling to pricing and what factors drive your ability to take up price at any time? So <clears throat> that's the question. I'll give you the answer, but I wanted to say previously the comment about Cars Land and Magic Kingdom and and the cruise lines. I wanted to share that not only because it was interesting, but because I want you to understand things are very deliberate and very thought through as is the issues that he's going to approach right now, which is about ceiling price on tickets. Here is Jay Rasulo's response, and it is a fascinating and even funny response. So, 30 years ago, Frank Wells asked me that question when we were thinking of going from $16.50 to $18.50. He said, quote, Jay, is this the ceiling on pricing? end of quote. I think that the irony of that question is that, you know, we price on a value basis and we keep a very, very close check on what the value proposition is for our guests and the feedback they give us about the value of a day in one of the parks versus the value of trying to cobble together some other form of entertainment for their family. And I think that we're still incredibly comfortable with that value equation not because we like it, but because our guests keep telling us that, quote, yes, wow, you guys continue to invest in the business, continue to bring it to the next level. The experience is great. It's very hard for me to take my kids out and them not to turn to me after 30, 40 minutes an hour and say they're bored. And I can do that for 10 continuous hours. I'm all in on that, end of quote. Then Rasula says, and I think that's pretty much what our guests continue to tell us. So, you know, we tend to price more at what we think of as an entertainment CPI, consumer price index, than a general CPI, which is a couple of points above. We are judicious in the decisions we make about it. They're not made willy-nilly. They're not automatic. They're different across the different spectrum of buyers from single day to multi-day and best customer and so on and so forth. And so far, we feel very comfortable that we can continue to do that. But be assured, we keep a very, very close look on that. End of quote. Um, again, I just think this emphasizes this is not capricious. This is not like, ah, you know, I'm going to get you. It is a very serious look at what market 
what the market demands. And unfortunately, Disney has to pay. If the market demands this, Disney has to put that price at that. Otherwise, your wolf on Wall Street will come and do it for you and it will be a messier situation. And so that's kind of that's kind of the situation it's in. And frankly, you know what? People are paying. I just went on this morning, first day of D23, um, buying D23 tickets, and already the three-day tickets for D23 in Anaheim are sold out. People want Disney. People are willing to pay for Disney. We saw that when they hiked up the prices on the Halloween party and the Christmas party, and guess what? Y'all bought that. So that's why Disney continues to advance the price. It's because people are willing to pay for it. Now you stop paying for it, then Disney has to change something because they got to keep demand high. And if they don't change, um, they, they have to go with the, what the market says. All that said and done, I'm gonna take a little bit of a twist at the end of this conversation and address, what about those of you who are saying, yeah, but I can't afford to go to the parks like I used to. In fact, I don't know when I'm gonna be able to go to the park again because hotel costs and ticket costs and all that, whoa, that is just really, really too high for me. Well, in truth, there will always be those who can't afford Disney. There always has, and there always will be. There's always been people who saw a Disney park on the wonderful world of Disney, imagining a day where they could visit themselves. Now guests have Disney Plus to provide that same outlet. Um, and they're still saying, I wish I could afford to go to Disney. Now, could there be something more than just watching it on TV? Well, imagine if you could pay $10 a month to visit the Disney parks virtually. In this new pricing tier, you could go anytime you want to, to the happiest places on earth. Not, not just Walt Disney World, you could go to Disneyland, you could go to Hong Kong or Paris and explore the parks in new ways via the metaverse. Who knows, perhaps it'll be an option to Disney Plus in the same way you can add Hulu or ESPN. Your virtual annual pass allows you to go day and night. In fact, you might experience a night in Walt Disney World in a manner comparable to a night in the museum. You remember that movie? Imagine if you could see Disney World come alive when the park is closed and you could play that experience virtually. And then when you eventually have the money to visit the parks, your virtual experience will play out all the more in a physical setting, allowing new technologies to see and interact with the park in ways you have never done before. Yes, Universal is building another theme park, but could it be that Disney is building something very different, very unique, that they are building a metaverse that would allow more people to visit than ever before, that would encourage people to come physically to the parks. Facebook, Microsoft, everyone is starting to pay attention to this thing called the metaverse. 
and so is Disney. And Disney's advantage is that not only can they create um, the physical in the virtual, they can create the virtual in the physical because they have brick and mortar theme parks already out there. It allows them to do things other organizations and corporations and companies cannot do. So that's where we're going next in this conversation is what is this whole metaverse thing and what is Disney thinking of in terms of things like artificial intelligence and artificial reality and all that that, that pertains to. Is it a hoax? Is it just a joke? Is it a wave of the future? It offers new ways to think about the Disney Park experience than ever before. And we look forward to bringing that to you. Thank you for joining us for this Disney at Work podcast. And uh, again, subscribe so that you can be notified of upcoming posts and podcasts as they come out. Take a look. If you can, go to iTunes or your podcast um, distributor and give us a good rating if possible. Let them know that you like this, if this is something that you enjoy, because we hope to bring more of this to you. And if you get a chance again, check out our Wayfinder Society where virtually you can check out the parks in new ways and learn new things and experience the park in, in fun, fantastical ways. Check it out. You can get previews at um, uh, as you visit our uh, both Disney at work and Disney at play.com. You can see links that'll give you a chance to check it all out virtually for free. Again, thanks for joining us. Again, in the words of Sinbad's storybook voyage, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We will see you real soon. Mm -hmm.